You want to hear Ray Charles sing some more, don't you? <laughs> Me too. Well, good morning, Grace Chapel. It's great to be with you here this morning. Uh, good morning to my friends here in Lexington that I haven't seen in a bit. Uh, it's great to be back. Um, thank you. Hello to my friends in Wilmington. I miss you. I hope you're having a great morning over there. And to those who are worshiping at all of our venues, we're so glad that you are joining us today. If you're listening online as well, welcome. Well, it is the 4th of July weekend, uh, 2016. I remember back to uh, another 4th of July, another year, 1976. And I was an eight-year-old boy. You can do the math if you'd like. America was experiencing a time of renewed patriotism during that year as we were celebrating our bicentennial anniversary. It had been 200 years since the signing of the Declaration of Independence, that, that event that marked the birth of a new nation. And, uh, and I was too young at the time to understand the dynamics of the turbulent time that our nation had been through in the decades and years prior. The civil rights struggles of the 50s and 60s the Watergate scandal and the resignation of a president, the Vietnam War that was coming to a close right before 1976. All of these things were working their way, tearing the fabric of a nation apart. And I think our country's leaders were hoping that the, the bicentennial celebration might lift our collective spirits, uh, remind us of who we are as a people, and point us back to some of our history and our heritage. And as a young boy, I remember it working its magic on me. That whole year, uh, everything was decked out in red, white, and blue. Uh, even the fire hydrants, do you remember this, were, were painted to look like Uncle Sam. The commemorative quarter came out that year with the Minuteman drumming his drum, the tri-cornered hat. The Freedom Train made its way around the country, the 48 contiguous states. And all during these years, uh, started to have an impression on me. As I was a teenager, I remember backpacking through the Adirondacks and North Central Pennsylvania, and this was the backpack that I wore out in the woods. We didn't see many animals, I'm not sure why. I was looking for a picture of me, of me wearing it, and here is one. Um, there is me, I didn't have it on. Actually, my brother, who was born in 1976, you know what we called him? Our bicentennial baby. So Matt is wearing the red, white, and blue colors. Well, fast forward a few decades, four to be exact, here we are celebrating the 4th of July weekend in the year 2016. And once again, uh, we find ourselves in a season where our nation seems to be experiencing this unsettledness and uncertainty. America's place in the global political sphere seems to be shifting. And as a country, we're not quite sure. We're divided about what the proper way forward might be. Then, of course, domestically here at home, social tensions are beginning to work uh, to tear the fabric of our society. Deep fissures uh, in our political life have emerged, and we find our social media feeds just filled up by the minute with, with people who are competing, their views lighting up one after another. And then, of course, this November, we all head to the polls to elect a new president. And what people are saying is one of the most contentious uh, elections uh, in, in a long time. One recent poll said that the word that describes most pe people's feelings about the election is the word frustration. 70% of those who are polled said that describes their predominant feeling. 
Another 52% say that they're angry as they think about it. Very few, about 23%, are excited. And only 13% characterize their feeling as proud. So it's a challenging time for our country uh, during this season. And so on this 4th of July weekend, I've been asked by Pastor Brian uh, if while he's away to China, I could step in and fix things before he comes back, okay? (laughs) So that's what this morning is all about. I'm going to heal the breach in our nation's soul uh, in just a few minutes. Bring in the big guns from Wilmington. Okay, yeah, yeah. Don't clap yet. We're not the end of the message. Um, so I'm not sure that we're going to do that, but I would suggest that a day like today and a weekend like this weekend is a good opportunity for us to consider how it is that Christians view our relationship to the nation that we live in. How do we view our responsibilities as citizens of a nation? What's the role of government? And how do we engage politically when we find ourselves in such a rancorous uh, setting in our national life? At the same time, I just want to pause and acknowledge that not everyone who's listening to this message here or online uh, are, are, are citizens of the United States of America. You may be citizens of many nations, and I believe that's the case here this morning. But whether you're an American citizen or you call another country your home, I would suggest these are important questions for all of us to wrestle with. And uh, I think the principles that we glean from today's scriptures are applicable no matter where you live. So I hope that you can take something out of this morning, regardless of your nationality. Well, I'd like us to turn to a very helpful letter that uh, will shed some light on these matters for us. It's a letter written by Peter. It's 1 Peter, and we're going to take a look at chapter 2. So if you have your scriptures, you can open. It's very likely that Peter wrote this letter from Rome, which was the seat at the time of the Roman Empire. And he He sent it to believers who were living throughout the region, scattered throughout the region of the most powerful nation state in the world at the time. And so his words to Christians then, I believe, can provide us with some good insight for our circumstance, our situation today. We'll pick it up right at 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, as I said, all of the early readers of these words would have been Roman citizens. Uh, Some of them, a few of them may have had a sense of pride in that association, saw themselves as Roman, Uh, but most were Jewish Christians, and they would have traced their deep roots of their national identity back to Jerusalem, not to Rome. Rome was actually the conquering force in their view. And so here we are, readers who are wrestling with an allegiance back and forth, tug of war to two nations, uh, each kingdom vying for allegiance. And Peter speaks into this reality, and he talks about our allegiance, and what he tells them right out of the gate is that whatever national allegiance we might have, as followers of Christ and as people of God, it ought to be eclipsed by an allegiance to another kingdom that God is creating. We need to hear that as Americans this morning. You see, God's primary plan for the world is the building of a great nation, but it's not an earthly one. 
It isn't a kingdom that we think about in, in political or national terms. It's a heavenly kingdom with Christ on the throne, made up of people from all the nations of the earth. Christ followers, no matter what your national allegiance might be, you have a higher allegiance. It's an important word. It's an allegiance that trumps any other. I knew some of you were wondering if I get that. Somebody said, that's Hilarious. Uh, I know. I know. It is contagious around here. I have to stop it. <laughs> so it is an allegiance that's higher than any nation state. It's an allegiance that's stronger than any political affiliation. Can I say that again? I don't have to. It's deeper than whatever connection we might have to whatever country is listed on our papers. And so our primary allegiance is to God as his chosen people in the kingdom that God is creating. And so in a beautiful way, what this does is it knits us tightly with people from across the globe who likewise are called to this allegiance, other Jesus followers whose true identity and whose true citizenship is in heaven with us. And so it's why when, when we travel as Christians to places around the globe, we find ourselves with other believers, experiencing a sense of resonance and a sense of community. I remember a time when I was in college and I was a, a midshipman in the Navy. I didn't end up pursuing a military career, but that summer of my freshman year, I did take a tour from Pearl Harbor uh, down to the South Pacific on a Spruance class destroyer. And on my way down, uh, I had an incredible experience with those that uh, served, and uh, I, I found myself learning a lot. I met a lot of great people. I was uh, impressed with the dedication of, of men and women who served our nation's military. Um, but the reality was the spiritual climate on the ship, at least among those who I was closest to, was sort of challenging for me. Um, I, I'll let you in on a secret. Sailors really do talk like sailors, okay? <laughs> I didn't know if you knew that. And it's true that uh, there are occasions uh, at ports of call when you're actually carrying someone back uh, in the early hours of the morning back to the ship. And it was all okay, but I, I didn't find anyone who shared with me a common faith, and I, <clears throat> I was finding myself missing that. And so then we come into this port uh, of a small island kingdom, Tonga. We made our way to Tonga, and we got off the ship at Liberty, and we began to wander into the streets of that small town nestled up upon the coast. And at one of the houses, a large Tongan man, came, Tongan man came out and he invited us into his home. And we went in and we sat down and he had some snacks laid out, great hospitality, just warm, uh, friendly, uh, generous person. And then he reached over and he got out his Casio keyboard and he set it on the table and he began to play. And I recognized the song instantly. It was one of the worship songs that we knew, a song of praise to Christ. And suddenly, you know, for him, he thought, oh, the Americans are here. They're Christians. I'll play them a song that we resonate with. He said, it's so great that you have in God, you, we trust on your money. You must all be Christians. Well, it was a naive thought. But it struck me as a moment where I sat and began to sing the songs with him. And in that moment, I found a brother in Christ, half a world away, singing together a song of praise. Really was beautiful. 
Pastor Brian and others are, are traveling this week in China, and they'll be meeting some of the leaders of the Christian movement in that country. And I'm sure that there they're going to find a shared allegiance that is higher than the respective allegiances to whatever nation they call their home. Then Peter goes on to say that it's as if we are living as foreigners and exiles in the places we call home. Dear friends, verse 11 says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires which wage against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Foreigners and exiles, um, they're not native born. They don't call the land they live in their home, but they are resident aliens in that country, maybe for a lifetime. So even if we have permanent citizenship with ironclad passports in our pockets, we see them as temporary visas in the broader scope of things. You know, probably this is more difficult for Americans to really live this way than a lot of people around the globe. As members of a nation that sees itself as exceptional, as a group who often find great comfort and confidence and security in the prosperity and the strength of our nation, it's hard to, to hold that citizenship lightly. This is something that Pastor Jeanette told me as we were talking just before she went to China. She said, you know, the worldwide church has a lot to teach us about this. The reality is, for many of them, their trust isn't in their nation state. They know that that is an ill place to put their trust. And it's a great place to start as we think about our role as citizens in the United States or whatever nation you, you come from. We have a higher allegiance. But Peter reminds us that even with this higher allegiance, it doesn't mean that we live above the fray somehow, sort of above the law, outside of the realm of the real world. The next part of his letter grounds us very solidly with our feet on the ground. As a matter of fact, he says that we're called to have a greater view of government. 13. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. And so we're called to have a greater view of government. You know, when we think about government these days, especially during our political climate when everyone is hurling insults left and right, we can find ourselves feeling very jaded towards the whole enterprise. Uh, when government lets us down, when public officials are found to be corrupt, when in the course of public discourse, we don't hear our voices being spoken in the public square. But no matter what the approval rating might be for our government or for any government, we're reminded in these verses that we're called to place ourselves under the authority of those who govern us. It turns out that Peter and the rest of the scriptures remind us that God is actually for government. He wants us to be responsive to those whose responsibility it is to govern. Why is that? Well, it's because civic order is a great benefit to a society. Laws help us to provide, help to provide safety and stability for a people who live in a well-governed land. 
Leaders create environments where people can experience freedom to work uh, and to be educated and to conduct commerce, to buy and to sell and to trade. Where people can use their skills and abilities to contribute to the good of society that they live in. Where families can flourish, where they can put down roots and set plans for the future. Municipalities provide basic services of water and sewerage and so forth. Police and the military enforce the laws by bringing justice to those who do wrong and by commending those who do good. Another way of saying all of this is that governments are established by God to promote the common good. In this beautiful environment where there's structure and safety and established order, now, it doesn't mean that God approves of every decision of every leader in every government. It's very important to know that. But God's good and sovereign purposes can be fulfilled even when bad people rule, even when government is corrupt. We know that's true. We have to remember that at the time Peter was writing this letter, the emperor was Nero. Now, Nero was a tyrant he was a narcissist, he was paranoid, he became worried that, that someone was going to kill him as the emperor. And so at 18, he had his stepbrother, Britannicus, put to death. At 22, he had his mother executed. This is not a nice guy. At the ripe old age of 25, his first wife was put to death. Now, Nero was rumored to have burned Rome to the ground, and then he blamed it on the Christians and then the Christians experienced, Christians during that day experienced one of the greatest uh, seasons of persecution in recorded history. And yet, what does Peter say? Submit yourselves to those that govern. Christians are called to submit themselves even to bad government, because even bad government is better than no government. We only need to look at countries where their nation state has is frail or has fallen apart to know what life without a functioning government looks like and how terrible it can be when thugs rule, when bullies set the tone. Places like Somalia and Iraq and Syria and South Sudan. We discover that government is better than anarchy. And then, of course, of course the flip side of this command is that those who govern have a responsibility to, before God for the authority that they've been given. And so they have, a, they have a responsibility whether they recognize that or not. And this is where we're grateful to God for the framers of, of our country here in America. Men and women who recognize their responsibilities as they forged a new country a new nation. They understood the pitfalls of unchecked power. And so ours is a government formed by the people and for the people. The founding document reminds us that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. A government they recognize derived their just powers from the consent of the governed. It's one of the things we celebrate on a weekend like this, is the wisdom of the framers of, of our Constitution. So first, Peter reminds us that we have a higher allegiance. Then he points us to the reality that we, we need to have a greater view of government. And thirdly, he calls us then uh, 
into a sincere engagement in our world, a sincere engagement. Listen to what he says in verse 16 and 17. Live as free people then, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's servants. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. I'm struck by those phrases that Peter uses in verse 17. He calls us to some high ideals here. Respect, love, fear or reverence, honor. Respect, love, reverence, honor. It's as if Peter, as he's speaking these words, is reaching deep into our souls, challenging us to bring out from us the very best of who we are as human beings. There's a certain genuineness and sincerity that that Peter is appealing to here from us. He's calling us, you see, to live as agents of reconciliation, respect, love, reverence, honor. The fact is our, pit- our political discourse these days seems to run counter to this idea of genuineness and sincerity. The fact is it's fueled, fueled uh, by those who work hard to exploit the divisions between us as people. The 24-7 news cycle with the split screen and people on either side making their point loudly uh, reminds us of the contentious nature of our political discourse. Sometimes it seems that the only thing that really unites us as a people is our disdain for our opponents and a cynicism towards the outcome of anything around here. And so there's this underlying urge to tear down rather than to build up. And I don't know about you, but I'm not sure it's leading us as a people to a better place. How great would it be if into this toxic brew, Christians began to play the role as agents of reconciliation, to bring healing to things that divide us. You thought I was kidding at the beginning of the message. We're gonna bring healing to a wounded nation. Respect, love, reverence, honor. What if we began to show respect to one another? Even with those with whom you don't see eye to eye, even, with the, even to those who are voting for a different candidate that you might be voting for this year, or those who are voting for no candidate. Look, the reality is this current election is likely to get even more heated and polarizing as the weeks press on here into the summer. Can I just say what an opportunity for us to demonstrate civility and respect, to show what that looks like. Let's commit ourselves to refraining from personal attack, derisive comments, cynicism, despair, and let's not pass judgment when we find out that somebody thinks or believes differently than we do. And let's share that same respect with others as we make our way through these rocky waters of the weeks ahead. And can I also say, let's be careful what we post on our social media. Let's be agents for healing, not divisiveness. And then love. Let's love each other as we move forward. Wouldn't it be great if the church showed the world what loving human relationships are all about? If we loved in a way that became uh, an example to those around us. And then reverence. In a world where faith is often discounted as soft or intellectually 
mediocre. In a place where Christians are often stereotyped or, or tried to cor be corralled into a certain voting block. And wouldn't it be great if in the midst of all of this that we commit ourselves to a genuine faith, to a genuine reverence for God, to a genuine love where we draw nearer to Christ and in so doing, genuinely reflect the character and qualities of God as we live out our day. And then honor. Now this can be a challenging one for many. What if we honored those who hold public office? What if we recognize the weight and the burden of leadership that they carry? What if we recognize the importance of that office and we sought ways to encourage them and to thank them and at the moments that we need to challenge that we do so in an honorable way, even those whose policies we see as misguided or harmful and in the process of demonstrating honor to our leaders, we actually remind them of their responsibility, one they've been given by God to uphold their office with great dignity and care. Now, of course, this sincerity of engagement doesn't mean <clears throat> that, we don't, that we fail to speak up when we see injustice or be attentive to the voices in our society that, that feel forgotten or mistreated. And, and it doesn't mean that we all hide our perspective on what we should do about any number of things, ISIS or immigration or gun violence. But it does mean that we don't use our differences to divide. And it does mean we don't get suckered into cynicism or negativity. And we don't tear each other down in the process. Now, I know I hear some of you saying, but what about the prophetic voice that's so important? What about those who, who, who step out and don't play nice and shake things up? Well, I would suggest that history, of course, reminds us that there are times we need to take a stand against the status quo. Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke out against the evils of Hitler's regime, even orchestrating a, an assassination plot against him for the sake of the millions of people who were being exterminated. Martin Luther King led a protest movement that helped to overturn long-held prejudices based on race and class. Mother Teresa spoke powerfully to Supreme Court, advocating for the sanctity and dignity of every human life. There are times our voices need to rise and be heard. But I would suggest even engagement such as this ought to be run through Peter's filter. We ought to consider carefully the filter of respect, love, reverence, and honor. So a higher allegiance is what we're called to, a greater view of the government, a sincere engagement in society. And then finally, Peter reminds us that we have a grander hope. You know, as a kid, I did grow up believing that America was a pretty special place. And I've talked with enough people around the world to know that uh, they've grown up in their own nations and, uh, and that the sense of pride of homeland is a pretty common experience, no matter where you grew up. And I, I still love our nation's beauty and the richness of our civic life and its history and the freedoms that we enjoy. And I do believe that God has used 
our nation in some very meaningful ways to be an influence of good around the world, to bring an end to tyranny, to help uphold the ideals of liberty and freedom both here and abroad, to provide relief around the world when disaster strikes or famine breaks out or disease begins to spread. And I would say we have an obligation as people of this country to steward it as a resource that has been placed in our care, to guard the trust of those who have come before us as we each have a part in shaping the direction of our nation. But you know, somewhere embedded in my early view of America was this subtle and sometimes not so subtle belief that America had a special place in God's heart among the other nations. Like maybe his plan for the redemption of the world uh, sort of pivoted westward somewhere around the late 1700s, and we were a part of it. That, that now it all hinges on us. But you know, I, what I've come to believe since is that our nation is simply one among many beautiful nations that will be represented in the new heavens and the new earth. That our nation is beautiful, beautiful, but all the nations have their beauty. And our nation is prized in God's eyes, but every nation is prized in his sight. Remember the picture of Revelation that Brian preached on last week with the nations coming into the gates of that great city. And so what I've also discovered is that our nation's history is spottier than we'd like to sometimes acknowledge with the running out of the Native Americans as we made our way in and the scourge of slavery, among other things. And we as a people still have a lot of work to do. We are not finished. But when the Bible speaks about a holy nation, it turns out he's not, it's not talking about America or any other earthly nation. It's talking about the people of God. You see, the hope of the world doesn't hinge on the outcome of an election. Can we all breathe a sigh of relief? It doesn't hinge on the outcome of an election or, or, or the continued strength of America's global influence or any of these things. Our confidence is in something far greater as a people. You see, the hope of the world is the gospel the narrative we discover in the pages of the scripture isn't a plan for God to gather together a group of people in one nation to make a difference for the world. It's a plan to gather people from many nations into a holy nation that together will change the world as we follow our great king. And that holy nation is not America and it's not any other earthly nation. It's a people of God who are redeemed and transformed by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.9, you're a chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession, so that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. And so what is God doing? What is Christ's work in this world? It's seeding the nations with people whose identity and allegiance is to an eternal kingdom and a, ver a very worthy king. You see, here's the big idea of the morning. 
Christ isn't calling his followers to build a great nation so much as he's calling us to be a great people among the nations. That's the bold audacity of the Christian hope. It's that Jesus Christ came into the world and he is reconciling all things to himself. And in that process, he's gathering together his people, called from every nation on earth to show the world what it looks like when healing occurs. So here's the charge this morning. Let's do that. Let's live like that. I believe the work of the church is needed today in the world more than ever. And in the midst of this turbulent season, let's us be agents of reconciliation for the sake of the gospel by being people who show respect and love and reverence and honor. Let's be people who value the great diversity of this kingdom honoring and valuing it when we see it around here at church among one another and when we see it in the world we live in. Thanking God for the beauty of the diversity of the nations of the world and the peoples of those nations. And then let's remember our unity with brothers and sisters wherever they come from, wherever they live, because together we are becoming a holy nation who find a shared identity and great hope in the one who loves us, the one who saves us, and the one who has come to make things right, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for these moments. I thank you for this season, God, and ask that you would lead us and guide us during a tricky season. God, we pray that you would help us to be the people you call us to be, that we act as agents of your reconciling work, that we remind people first and foremost, not that there is a certain political outcome that we'd like, but that there is a great outcome that we have confidence in. And that is one where Christ comes to redeem the world and has already caught us to up to be a part of that. Lord, help us to love the way you call us to love. Help us to honor in the ways that you call us to honor. Help us to revere you and reverence you and fear God. Help us, God, we pray, to respect one another in all things, in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.